Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 167 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, we had a few more choices last week, but still not in abundance. We're going to cover two cases today and a bunch of other stuff. Our first case today is from the Indiana Court of Appeals, Joe Alcazar at Al versus Orthopedic and Sports Medicine Center of Northern Indiana at Al. The second case is from the Illinois Appellate Court, 2nd District, Conrad's versus Valley Imaging Consultants, Inc., or not Inc., LLC. Let's turn to our first case. Is it malpractice to fail to prescribe or issuing invalid prescriptions? That is the question in the Indiana Appellate Court, which stated the issue thusly, and as we've talked about, it's great uh, the way they do these summaries. This appeal concerns more than 100 medical malpractice cases brought against a number of healthcare providers. This appeal specifically addresses cases filed against two providers, the ASC Surgical Center, ASC, and the Anonymous Clinic. Clinic. Appellants are former patients of appellees who were being treated for low back pain and received contaminated prescription epidural steroid injections. Appellants contend that appellees committed medical malpractice by failing to issue prescriptions or issuing invalid prescriptions for them to receive preservative-free methyl prednisolone, MPA, from a pharmacy, the New England Compounding Center. Appellants further contend that appellees committed malpractice by providing them with an improperly labeled vial of MPA and injecting them with a vial of prescription MPA that was labeled for use by another patient. In this appeal from the denial of their motion for partial summary judgment, appellants argue that appellees, by their admitted conduct, committed malpractice by violating Indiana's prescription drug laws and the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, FDCA. Appellees are subject to Indiana's prescription drug laws and the FDCA. Appellees' violations of Indiana's prescription drug laws and the FDCA constitute negligence per se, given appellees' admitted conduct. Such statutory violations are issues of law to be determined by a court. Appellants' medical malpractice claims are not preempted by the FDCA. Appellants should be able to discuss the laws underpinning its medical malpractice claims before a medical review panel, and the trial court erred in denying appellant's motion for partial summary judgment. Pat, tell us about this case with this long, long summary of the issue. And, you know, there's a couple things. First, neither of us, I think, are really qualified or know enough about the situation to dive into the facts, really into the, the, the issues here, but just to kind of draw in broad strokes We'll do the best we can. Um, you'll remember about 10 years ago, uh, this New England compounding pharmacy uh, was raided and shut down because it uh, was producing um, uh, drugs that had become contaminated and caused the failure of sterile procedures and caused a great deal of harm across the country. Uh, they were found to be in violation of all kinds of federal laws, and this is a part of the fallout 
from that because you had doctors then who were using these drugs in order, and in this case, uh, injecting these steroids, this, uh, this MPA um, that was made by this compounding pharmacy. So what the principal, Dan, correct me if I'm wrong, but the principal uh, uh, criticism that the plaintiffs have of the defendant doctors is they did not write individual prescriptions for the drugs. In other words, they didn't say, I need, a, I need this dose of this drug for Joe Jones, and I need this dose of this drug for, Sa- for Sally Jones, and so forth. Instead, they were getting bulk. They were getting the, the, the drugs shipped in bulk. So they were getting five for Joe and five for Sally and giving them to Tom, Dick, and Harry. Uh, and Tom, Dick, and Harry never had a, uh, a prescription. Uh, they, the, the prescriptions were for Sally and Joe. Uh, and yet they were being injected into Tom, Dick, and Harry. And the claim is, is that that violates both Indiana law as well as federal law. And that the, there's an issue regarding whether federal law even applies, because there's a question about whether the, they were the doctors that is were engaged in interstate commerce. I will say, as a side side note, that's going nowhere under the yeah. current jurisprudence. I may not think that. I mean, first of all, I don't understand how you make that argument. As the name would suggest, New England Compounding Center. This was in some place in New England. These right. people seem unlike many of the uh, people that run athletic conferences in college to be able to read a map. Uh, and you know, now we have Cal Berkeley and Stanford and some and SMU and something called the Atlantic Coast Conference. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and we have, we have something called the big East that has Creighton and Butler in it who are neither big nor in the East. Uh, <laughs> it's a never ending source of joke. In fact, of the big conferences, while we were on this topic, the big conference is the one that's kind of criticized as being the you know the most lowbrow in terms of its in terms of its academics is the SEC. At least they know where Southeast is. They do. You know, they, they, they seem <laughs> to know that they have reached the extent of Southeast Oklahoma and Texas. You know, we've got Missouri, okay. We've got, you know, it was a slave state, okay. We, we you know, but it's it's in south it's south and east, you know. They, they at least can read a map. The rest of these people, I don't think they can count or they're very bad at the geography. Anyway, so this seems to have come in interstate commerce. I don't understand how if I ask someone, if I'm in Indiana, which, by the way, is not in New England. It's in the Midwest. I can read a map. Uh, <laughs> I went to school. If I ask for someone in New England, Vermont, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, wherever and, I, and wherever this compounding pharmacy was was located, to ship me something in, the, in in Indiana, it crosses state lines. I don't understand how that isn't. I don't understand the argument that that's not interstate commerce. That sure seems like interstate commerce, and I don't have to call for the overturn of Wickard versus Filburn in order to reach that conclusion. Um, <laughs> I, I think even I, who have a real problem with the scope of what. Uh, interstate, what constitutes interstate commerce can say, that sounds like interstate commerce to me, that Congress might be able to regulate. I mean, I like the regulation, all those kinds of things, but that's a separate question. It seems they have the jurisdiction to do it. Uh, so other thing to talk about here real quick is what is a compounding pharmacy? A compounding pharmacy is, you know, when you buy things over the counter, uh, you know, 
it's made by you know Bayer, it's made by Glaxo, GlaxoSmithKline, it's made by you know these different companies, and they make them in bulk and they and they sell them either over the counter or or in the prescription world. Uh, they have certain regulations; they're very highly regulated. The FDA is all up in their business. The compounding pharmacies are much smaller operations. They make like made-to-order type drugs. And because of the small batch, there's the idea is there's less risk, which the plaintiffs argue is the reason why you need to have the one-to-one match between the prescription and the drug. Joe Jones needs this drug and this amount, and this is who's supposed to give it. I mean, and, and these drugs, if I remember correctly, these were not only, this was a, a steroid uh, for, for injections of pain relief, but this also dealt with, they were essentially skimming off the top of cancer drugs. They yeah. were, if I, I may have this mixed up with a different one, but this is generally the idea that they were, people were getting, they were compounding um, uh, chemotherapy drugs and they were not giving the full dose. Um, and so it, that creates a real problem because you have to have it the right dose uh, in order for it to be, in order for it to be effective. And so they're now going after the doctors because I have to imagine long ago that the compounding pharmacy ran out of assets and so did their insurers. And so you're, they're now going after the doctors for not ha- for having essentially participated in this scheme and harmed these people by giving them these drugs. It's unclear what the injuries were that these people suffered. Uh, that doesn't seem to be clear. There's a whole range of them. There were four or five different plaintiff's attorneys who were named. Uh, only a couple were actually uh, present and are, and only one argued. But uh, this is obviously a big deal. Uh, there's a lot of people who were potentially harmed by this. Uh, and then there's some real technical issues that this case got into about whether they could talk about these legal issues at the medical malpractice panel. I don't want to get in the weeds on Indiana's, uh, arcane's the wrong word, uh, Rube Goldberg device type medical malpractice system. I think that's being charitable, frankly. It's, it's so. quite it's quite a maze. You've got this panel and there's a person that is the chair of the panel and that's usually a lawyer that instructs the panel and then you have a couple of doctors that are on the panel and they decide whether there was a breach of the standard of care and that's the initial process. And you heard Dan mention one of the clinics is anonymous clinic and the reason why they're anonymous clinic is you don't you can't name them until You've actually got to find it that they did something wrong. So it seems that ASC Surgical Center had a finding of, of wrongdoing, I guess, but Anonymous Clinic, not so much, uh, or at least not yet. And uh, so that's the, the, they're all these, these all seem to get consolidated, as, as one might imagine, considering they all have seemingly have very similar issues. Uh, but an interesting and important case and very broad uh, implications, potentially, uh, because compounding pharmacies are... You know, I don't know how if they're increasing in use or not, but they're certainly a part of the market um, and can be an important part of the market. I know my mother, um, at least some of her drugs came from a compounding pharmacy. I don't think it was this one, but it was, you know, other compounding, you know, at least some of the drugs that she took over the years uh, in her uh, fight with cancer were, were compounded, were compounded drugs. So uh, um, and they were made in, they're an important part of, of the process. So Dan, what are your thoughts on this case? I agree with you, Pat. And I, I don't know the statistics on whether or not there's been more compounding centers or not. Uh, but you raise some of the issues of why the doctors are being sought after because they're smaller, like you said, and so not the Glaxos or the Bear or the giant Johnson and Johnson, whatever those you know the big giant producers of pharmaceuticals. Many of them out in Jersey, 
um, for whatever reason. But, uh, the, you know, I, I think you'll see more of these because, like I said, it's an important topic. People seem to be, you know, there's, there's definitely side effects and impacts on these folks for using some of this stuff, especially when it was contaminated, you know, if it was contaminated. So important issues. And like you mentioned. One, th yeah, one thing that's important to mention is that the, one of the arguments is that there's no causation here. Even if they had written the prescriptions as they're supposed to have done, what's the evidence that this would have changed the outcome, that, the, that somehow the drugs wouldn't have been contaminated? Um, I, I don't Which, think the plans really had a good answer to that. At least I didn't hear it. I think it's a valid argument, right? Because, yeah, what's, whether the, the prescriptions match or not, the contamination would have probably still occurred. The way I mean, they were doing it would have right. still led to the problem. So I, I don't right. it was, understand. It was a process thing. It wasn't a, you know, this specific batch was made and contaminated. So, yeah, I, I think that's problematic. All right. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with our uh, our second case and discuss um, Conrad's versus Valley Imaging, another MedMal case. Mm-hmm. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment two of episode 167 of the Podium and Panel podcast. And was the circuit court correct to grant summary judgment to the defendant radiology group faced with the following facts on an agency theory? The doctor was paid by the hour. The doctor had options to accept or reject any shift that he wanted and had been offered to him. The doctor was paid on a 1099 with no taxes or other withholding. The practice group paid for the doctor's malpractice insurance. The agreement that the doctor had with the practice group contained a non-compete agreement. The doctor had had to have privileges at the hospital, but the practice group had the sole authority to hire and fire him. Those are the salient facts in question presented in Conrad's versus Valley Imaging that was argued last week before the Illinois Appellate Court Second District. The practice group got out on summary judgment. And the doctor, or the strike that the plaintiff appealed, the, the doctor, is a, is, as you said, is a radiologist. Dan, tell us about this interesting case. Thanks, Pat. And we've, we've done some of these before. And I think, you know, listeners, this is this is the ongoing battle of, of the independent contractor, gig employees versus true employees. The, though, this, um, though this structure existed long before anyone knew what a gig was. Well, it did. It did. The, the, these gigs, uh, these these jobs did. Um, and I you know, know the, that because the leading case in Illinois is from 1992. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and, it, it, and it's the culmination of a long group of cases before that. Right. And we, we've talked about cases where uh, in the medical setting, Pat, and emergency rooms and otherwise, they have signs up about who's, like if you go in your medical provider's office for years, you know, your, your mom had treatment, uh, like you talked about, my mom way back, my dad. You go into any doctor's office, you go into the hospitals, and there's disclaimers all over the freaking place about who's 
they're not employees, you know, all this stuff. It used to be models used to be that the doctors were all part of a hospital, you know, Resurrection or, or Northwestern or whatever, and they had privileges there and they really didn't go to other places. And that's all kind of changed the whole structure of medicine. Well, the doctors changed. had independent practices and now they've right. all been bought up and many of them are employees. But radiologists have always been a bit different because no one actually sees the radiologist. Right, right. Radiologists yeah. and pathologists are, are a little a, a different, different, uh, a different kettle of fish. Yep. And Pat, you, you mentioned a number of factors. I think I think the justices on this panel, uh, which included uh, Burdett, uh, who we've mentioned before from this Burkett uh, Burkett um, from the uh, second district, um, the uh, counsel for the appellants talked about. Uh, painting the house and, you know, you bring somebody in and they paint from nine to two. And, uh, I think the you know, I don't know, the justices or the appellees counsel were like, what the hell are we talking about painters for? Um, but it's, it was, it was used as an example. And you, you raised and listed a number of factors that were seen here. Uh, the, um, the arrangement was this, that the, the, uh, radiology, uh, contractor had a contract with the rush hospital, and as you mentioned, they had the sole power to employ, uh, retain, uh, advise members. There's an agreement uh, between uh, the radiology uh, firm and the hospital that talks about policies and procedures being followed, including those of the imaging radiology company. And uh, the dispute here is really, again, uh, trying to uh, get this radiologist under the umbrella of of uh, uh, for 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 the hospital and for the radiology group to get them under uh, so that they have uh, they can they can not be uh, subject to liability for him. The uh, um, you know it was hourly. He said it was on schedule. That was one of the questions from a justice and. Council said, "Well, and then, uh, the uh, you mentioned uh, that they're not forced to work a shift. Uh, one of the justices suggested that supports independent contractor. Uh, you know, they don't withhold taxes, as you said. Although, uh, as as we see in these cases, uh, both in Illinois, California, and other places that are constantly trying to figure out these independent contractor versus employees." The fact that you don't withdraw taxes is not uh, definitive just because um, that's a position if you're 1099, you know, and, uh, you know, Pat, you and I, as, as, as lawyers and law firms, as partners, we get 1099s, K1s, uh, some, in most cases, sometimes we don't, but, but uh, um, you know, and there's not much, much argument there that we're independent contractors because we're professionals and uh, doing these things. The... Uh, uh, lot, lot of discussion about the various factors and what exactly uh, the, um, uh, the, the this particular doctor radiologist was doing. Uh, one of the things that the appellant's lawyer said is that for, with regard to scheduling, he really wasn't able to determine his own schedule uh, once he accepted a. a uh, an appointment or a day of work, he had to fill it. Uh, one of the things that they talked about in terms of 
uh, indicia that he's an employee, not a, an independent contractor, is the fact that he does not directly bill anybody, uh, that he doesn't have control over what charts he reviews or what kind of work he does. If he's in the hospital, he does whatever is needed that, that day during the shift that he's, he performs. And uh, uh, so uh, that they have the power to fire him. Um, he's paid, you know, he's, he's, he's paid hourly as we talked about. So, uh, when the appellee stood up, it was interesting because there was a lot of this conversation and then the appellee said the evidence is undisputed. Uh, it's a question whether the facts are sufficient. The, uh, uh, justices, I think on the questions of the appellee, one of the questions for sure, uh, was, uh, you know, uh, how much, uh, uh, again, how much control he had over his, uh, over his, uh, ability to work. Uh, and, uh, one of, one of the, one of the justices asked about the fact that it seems like there's two versions of things going on here and whether or not, um, those things should be determined by a jury and not by a judge, uh, because there seems to be at least two issues of, of the underlying facts in this case. Was that the uh, facts themselves? It's the inferences to be drawn. Right, and, the inferences and, to be drawn. If there's inferences yeah. to be drawn, then that in both that could go one way or the other, and in the and that the summary judgment is not clear and free from doubt, then summary judgment was inappropriate and it goes to a jury. Um, I, I you know, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, and uh, again, uh, this panel that you know, like we talk about sometimes. Sometimes you can get a sense from the questions that the justices have a very kind of solidified view in their minds of, of where this is going. This one, I think, is a little more difficult because I think they asked the appellant a lot of questions. And then when the appellee stood up, they asked a lot of questions again about, uh, again, some of the facts and circumstances and the underlying ability of this uh, particular radiologist uh, to determine whether it was going to do work that there was no choice of what charts he looked at, uh, that, uh, you know, whether he was under uh, the control and supervision uh, pursuant to the contract and otherwise. And so this will be an interesting case to see how this uh, uh, comes out. I, I uh, uh, will make predictions, but I'm not sure it's a, uh, the, 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 this bit may be a hard one to predict just because of the I, I don't think the it's nature of We'll get there. Yeah. Um, so, so. Uh, so let's move on to BI for COVID. Nothing this week on that, but we do have BIPA. Uh, this is going to be our new COVID. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Dan, why don't you tell us about what happened in federal court? Sure. There was a case that, that involved the taping of voices of employees so that they can get into using their voice they could uh, go get into hallways or do other things with their voices uh, kind of like those chips that are in uh, some of the employees that some of these employers a few years ago uh, offered to some employees they could use it as their their id card they could use it to go into the cafeteria and buy things and uh, in this case uh, the taping of voices uh, and and the class survived a motion to dismiss and so I think the a voice is a biometric. It is. Yeah, I, I, I guess it is. I, I, I hadn't thought about it that way, but there it is. Yeah, um, yeah. I certainly can yeah. see an eye, eye scanner and a 
facial recognition and a gait and, yeah. and a fingerprint, of course. But I never thought about I have voice, you know, biometric. Okay. I wonder what, you know, one of, one of the other things I think, Pat, that's uh, not defined in any of these statutes that I'm aware of that's becoming more and more of an issue because people have gone away from fingerprints is the palm print. Mm-hmm. And, that you know, the palm print, they're, they're, I don't think it's as unique as fingerprints, but there are some scanners now that are using palm prints. And so I'm sure we'll have a case when it stays soon uh, on an appellate level about whether the palm print is... Uh, Definitely, it meets the definition of biometric information. Well, I would think it would if it fingerprint. I would tell. I, I mean, I don't see why that would be an issue. It, it's it also, I, it's there are a whole lot more variables in a palm. Yeah. Because you're dealing, because you, you pick up the fingers, and then you've got the size of the hand, and then you've got the lines on the hand. Just ask a, just ask a, a palmist. You know, they'll they'll tell you about all the different lines and all what all those mean. Yeah. Um, that dribble. So yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I, I just, but but the definition is usually fingerprint, and so it doesn't yeah. necessarily talk about the palm. But sure, that'll be amended, I'm sure. Yep, that brings us to our prediction. Sure to go wrong. We were two and a half and a half this week. <laughs> Dan is two hundred fifty-five and a half, fifty-seven and a half, and seventeen. I am two hundred fifty-two and a half, sixty and a half, and seventeen. Um, the first case we got right is. Van Buren versus City of Chicago, um, and I, I've got I, I've got a bone to pick. Um, it seems the opinion is right. You'll recall this is a case where the uh, an eyewitness and, or two eyewitnesses identified the def- the plaintiff as the shooter at a bar or at a restaurant where he would it apparently shot or allegedly shot his ex girlfriend. Uh, she was one of the eyewitnesses. She said it's him, and he has a scar on his head. Turns out there is no scar on his head, and uh, he didn't do the shooting but was held in jail for 19 months. And the question was whether there was sufficient probable cause for the police to have arrested and held him. And the part I've got, the bone I've got to pick is this. The court said there is a presumption in the law. I was unaware of this presumption. This seems like a stupid presumption. There is a presumption in the law that if a victim says, a crime victim says, that they witnessed the crime and they witnessed the person that victimized them, there is special deference given to them. I don't understand. No. Why would such... I mean, this woman dated this man for a year. She said he had a scar on his head that she saw during their during uh, during their relationship when she was playing with his hair or something. That's the testimony. It doesn't exist. It's not there. <laughs> no scar on the head. Um, oops. Yeah, oops. Uh, and that doesn't explain the other person. But I, I and apparently this guy doesn't sound like the nicest guy in the world. But he disputes the fight that they allegedly had the the morning before the alleged shooting. He disputes all the, but I just don't understand this idea of why would we give presumption to why would a person under this great stress of not only being shot at, but in this case actually having been shot, why would we give credence, special credence? Not I would give some credence, sure, but special credence to this is the person that shot me. Why? I, I don't understand this. Dan, do you have any insight as to why a crime victim what what they have a reason not to lie? Like X ex-lovers have never lied about their ex their ex i mean i'm not suggesting some crazy thing where she hired someone to come in and do it 
I'm not suggesting that, but I am suggesting that I, I, this seems a little, I don't know why there would be this presumption. It's kind of like, it's kind of like, why do we have uh, an exception to the hearsay rule is a dying declaration? Why, why does that exist? It exists and I've used it, but why does it exist? Right. What's so you're more credible because you're dying. Yeah, because people never lie. They like they take an oath. I'm gonna. Die, I'm, I'm dying, or I think I'm dying. Because you don't actually have to be dying. You just have to think you're dying. And right. all of a sudden, you start telling the truth. What now? I, I've met humans. I am a human. <laughs> and lying is that's just what they do. Just ask Doctor House. Um, how do I know he's lying? His lips are moving, and his words and words are coming out. That's how I right. know he's lying. No presumption should be given to any person special about the reliability of what they have to say. I agree. The, you know, unless there's a reason to give that kind of reliability. Statements against interest, and in going back to the hearsay context, you know, somebody where a person has a motive to tell us the truth. But after the motive, people are going right. to lie. Right. Excited utterances for the same reason, because, right. you know, it's, it's spontaneous. It's in the moment. It's spontaneous. There's a reason to give it an indicia of reliability, I believe right. is the term that's used in the law. But I, I really am not a fan of this this presumption. The opinion, I think, follows the law. I think the law needs a change, <laughs> at least in that part. I think they may still have come to the same conclusion because that the, the, the officers had other evidence. They had another eyewitness. One eyewitness would have been enough, but they had another one. Uh, and, and so they had other things that I don't think it was a malicious prosecution. Um, they give them probable cause. There were other problems with the case as well, but damages obviously wasn't one of them, considering he was held in held in jail for 19 months. So damages wasn't a problem, but he had plenty of other problems with his case. So anyway, that's that's uh, anything to add on that one? That's enough of no. my soapbox and that stupid presumption. That no. brings us to Muse versus Fox Point. Uh, so we we uh, th- this case. So this lady organizes. <laughs> We discuss, oh, by the way, we discussed Van Buren on episode 162. Muse, we discussed on episode 165. We're going to knock out 165, episode 165, this episode. It's kind of amazing. Right. We'll get to that in the second one, the second case we talked about during that episode here in a minute. But first, Muse, this is the case where the lady uh, is arranging a, a party at the pool. Not a pool party, a party at right. the pool. Right. Uh, and Without pool decides, usage. Yeah, no pool usage until the drunk arranger of this party, or drunk, she had consumed adult beverage. She was she was uh, she was polluted, uh, shall we say? And then she decides that she's going to try to get the plaintiff into the pool. And she pushes her down, and this woman like just gets really horribly injured. Apparently, what I don't mean to laugh, but she she's torsing around and she pushes this woman. Hey, let's get to the pool and knocks this woman down, and she suffers these injuries. And then the plaintiff settles with Muse, the individual. And so there's two bases upon which this case is decided. The first is that the settlement with the alleged agent barred the claim against the principal. And then, oh, by the way, she wasn't the agent anyway, which are kind of contradictory conclusions. Right. It took me a second. I was like, what now? So there's that, which is why the, which is why the second, why two-thirds of the opinion may not actually be dicta. Because they actually aren't, they don't rely on each other. You see my point? Normally, yeah. dicta, it, you know, these are mutually exclusive. If she was the agent... Then they're released. If they if they weren't the agent, then they're not then then they're not liable. Um, so they covered both of the bases, which is why they did that. Why the court went through both of those. Um, 
Anything to add on that one, Dan? No. All right, which brings us to the one I found this morning. It came out on Friday, Missouri versus Biden. A tight 74-page opinion in contrast to the 155-page district court opinion. Right. This is the case we discussed on episode 165. We told you we'd knock this one out. Dan, did you have a chance to read the opinion or, or give us your thoughts on this? On this I, I did, and this was the case with uh, respect to social media and misinformation, the campaign, the district court had granted the injunction. And uh, this against court the front, government and many against government inside inside yeah. the government, accepting the president, the president. Yeah. Government. Yeah. And uh, what, what the district uh, court's judgment was affirmed with respect to the White House, the Surgeon General, the CDC and the FBI and was reversed as all other officials. Uh, the preliminary Which injunction was the CDC, the NAID, the right. Uh, couple other groups and when dan says the white house he's speaking of like officials within the white house and right. uh the press secretary and so forth um these kinds yep. of things yep and uh um, the, the yeah. preliminary injunction was vacated except for the prohibition number six which was modified uh in this 74 page opinion and uh we'll see this case go up to the supreme court i'm sure or at least an attempt it has to do with free speech and with misinformation and what the uh, administration has been trying to do with respect to uh, uh, a bunch that, of, and the Supreme Court has a lot of spaces on its docket to fill. They do. And this will help it, and this will help it do that. <laughs> it will, and it, uh, the other case is likely to find its way up to the Supreme Court. Uh, there was a two hundred page district court opinion in Alabama on the redistricting and failure of Alabama, you know, to, they, they re, they ignored the Supreme court with the two districts and, uh, it, the, the district court, uh, issued a unanimous, pretty scathing opinion about the conduct of the Alabama district legislature. Court, was it a three judge panel? Because it was a it was three uh, judge panel. Explain that, explain, explain what that, yeah. why there would be a, why there would be a panel in a district court. Did you expand on that? Yeah, like you like you said, it's because it's a redistricting, uh, and because of the legislative mapping, uh, instead of just having a solo uh, judge uh, determine it, I think by by, by by kind of the rules, it's it's statute. Uh, voting statute. Rights Act, I think the, the, I think the Voting Rights Act requires it. That requires you have a judge it. Panel. Yeah. And so, and this is under Section Two, and uh, and uh, so they they appointed a special master. We'll see what happens with the special master comes out with their plans in the next couple of weeks. And so uh, more to and come by this. That's yeah. headed back to the Supreme Court. Maybe not in time for this term, but that's but going back to the Supreme Court. I, I think so. Like you said, they've got, I don't think they've, like last uh, year going into the opening of the term, a lot of times the, the court in past, you know, history uh, had a lot of cases already kind of set and, and uh, grants. Uh, but as Pat said, they've got a lot of time on their calendar. I think the first couple weeks, first couple sittings, they're booked, but but they need some cases. And so this case definitely will go up there. Important issues of, of First Amendment and government control. One of the things Dan didn't touch on, it was a big issue at the oral argument, was standing. They found that there was, they, they, they dealt with that. They spent a long time on the standing issues. Um, and, and really set forth that there was all kinds of different kinds of standing here. Uh, this was not a situation where you're dealing with, um, you know, a 
pre-enforcement challenge. This is a situation where it occurred. What occurred and whether what occurred was a violation is the different question. But the right. allegations as they stand confer, the court found, confer standing. Um, and so then that brings us to our predictions uh, for this week. Um, I, I think the Alcazar case gets affirmed. I think so. And I think the, and I'm pretty, I, I feel really confident that the Conrad's case is getting reversed. Yeah, I think Ju- so too. Justice Burkett was, I, he was indignant, I think, at the idea that you could enter summary judgment in this circumstance. Yeah. He really just didn't seem to buy at all that there weren't inferences that could be drawn and that this opinion or that this uh, issue was clear and free from doubt. I mean, he may have decided it differently. I mean, he may have agree, it may agreed with the outcome. He's like, I think right. that's what the law is. But I don't think he was comfortable with it being granted on summary judgment. Uh, that was the impression I got from his, his I comments. Agree. Um, I agree. Which brings us to the rule of the week. Dan, why don't you introduce this issue? Sure, Pat. And uh, you found this one. There's a new formal opinion from the American Bar Association, Opinion 508. That's ethics of witness preparation that was issued in August of this year. Why don't you tell us well, more about it? It wasn't actually issued in August. The, yeah. the, the press release from the from the ABA says it was issued, actually released on September 6th. Right, but it's dated it August dated 8th. August 5th. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. Why the delay? It, it's, it's interesting because August 5th would have been still during or right around the time of the ABA meeting. That may be and then, why. And maybe that's why, you know, maybe it had to go to whatever body to formalize it. So who knows? Right. Um, yes. It's, it's, so the, the, the press release dated September 6th from the ABA website, the ABA Standing Committee on Ethics and Professional Responsibility released a formal opinion today, providing a roadmap to help lawyers stay within the parameters of ABA model rules of professional conduct when they prepare a witness or client to testify before a deposition or adjudicative, or adjudicative proceeding. So there's a really important case, or strike that, opinion mm-hmm. for litigators. Uh, and the kinds of uh, shenanigans, we've all seen them go on. We've probably have, we've probably have to catch ourselves to prevent us from doing some of the things that are described here. Um, no, I can't do that. I can't tell you, you know, this kind of a thing. You've got to think about what you are allowed and not allowed to do both prior to and during um, a deposition, there is, uh, I, I take that this, this, there's an exchange between Jack McCall and his lawyer. This appears to be from Deadwood, if I got this right. I think that's right. And the line is Jack McCall, well, I'm a hard case for you, counselor, and make no mistake, everyone in there saw me shoot it. Uh, and the lawyer says, well, if you let me set our strategy, I don't think we'll dispute what people saw. Now, I guess he, I guess you're here to break me out. The, uh, the lawyer laughs and then says, son, did James Bill Hickok ever kill a relative of yours? James Bill Hick- James Butler Hickok? <laughs> the lawyer <laughs> says, wild Bill Hickok, did he ever kill a brother of yours or, or the like? A brother? And they go on like this. And the, the idea essentially is, how do you get this guy? How do you prepare this person for deposition or trial? And then what do you do at breaks and things like this? Now, it's pretty clear during trial when someone is being examined, you can't talk to them about the substance right. of their testimony. But deposition is a little more, uh, shall we say, loosey-goosey. Uh, and uh, there are fewer controls when the person in the in the funny black dress isn't there. Uh, and so 
they discuss those kinds of things. As I say, it's 11 pages. It's an ex- it's an excellent and well-researched, heavily footnoted uh, opinion. And uh, for those of us that practice uh, actively or litigate actively, I really think it's a must read. Uh, it's a very, very good piece of work. Um, anything else to add, Dan? Maybe the cat has something to add. I just, I just heard the cat. Yeah, the cat has a lot to say about this case and this uh, this opinion about a lot of things. (laughs) (laughs) Principally feed me, Um, feed me and pay attention to me because I'm I'm so cute. They could care less about that. Uh, Yeah, there she, there, there you go again. All right. So with that, we will take our leave. Thank you everybody for joining us. We'll see you next week on the podium and panel podcast. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.